Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly. Good morning and welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. It's actually Mornings without Carmen for one more hour this week. Carmen will be back in the host chair next week. I know she's been having a great vacation and again, so appreciative uh, of the faithful stewardship that she and Paul Perot and this whole Faith Radio family does week in and week out to talk about Jesus in the midst of so many chaotic realities in our world. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today and uh, there's another fill-in that's going to be joining us in just a moment. Paul AC from PluggedIn.com, Adam Holtz typically joins us in this segment, but Adam is away, and so Paul will join me. And we're going to talk about one of the forthcoming movies called The Phantom of the Open, which chronicles a a true story of a person who shot the worst score in history in the British Open. And I can't wait to talk about that because, Paul Perot, you know I'm a bit of a sports guy. and uh, and A bit. A bit, and you've been scheduling some some great stories. I know if uh, people missed the show yesterday, the last half hour of yesterday's show... Go to MyFaithRadio.com, download the Mornings with Carmen page and, and podcast, and we talked with Sherman Smith and just this epic story of discovering this young man that he had been mentoring actually all along he he discovered was his biological son. And mm-hmm. talking as an NFL football coach only can in terms of getting us excited about it. He was great. And there are some other sports headlines in the news, and I want to bring Paul Acey into the conversation now since we're going to be talking a bit about this golf movie, one of the headlines is professional golf. And we're, we're seeing the U.S. Open being played out. It's day two. And the reason why this is important from even just a, a spiritual standpoint is that in the last couple of weeks, the historic PGA Tour in which all of the professional golfers would have agreed is the premium, a premium tour. It's where they want to be. It's where all the history and the tradition is. Well, there was about 48 golfers or so and some prominent names among them that broke away from that tour to join a different tour called the Live Tour. And the reason why this is important is this Live Golf Tour is being funded by Saudi Arabia. And most people in the news, both liberal and conservative, are suggesting that Saudi Arabia is is pouring some $2 billion into this golf tour and uh, and and seducing away some of the biggest names in professional golf, including Phil Mickelson, one of probably the two greatest current living golfers, along with Tiger Woods. He accepted $200 million to participate in this tour as Saudi Arabia is trying to regain some measure of reputation and prominence in our world after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist a few years ago, their ongoing human rights abuses, the, the, this process of sports washing or using sports to try to clean up your image. Paul Acey, it's been really interesting to watch what they're doing here. And it's interesting to watch how it's playing out in the, in the, just even the demeanors of these profess, professional golfers who many people are accusing of taking blood money. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fascinating thing that we're seeing go on here. Uh, it's a, it, honestly, the whole, the whole live tour makes me a little sad because I'm kind of a traditionalist. I like golf. I, I have always really enjoyed watching the, the major tournaments on, on, on the PGA. Uh, I understand $200 million is a lot of money. 
And yet Phil Mickelson, especially Phil Mickelson, he's one of my very, very favorite golfers. Mm-hmm. He uh, he has always struck me as as such a, an upright individual, a good family man, really good husband. He seems to have his priorities in the right place. But I, I kind of think he went uh, he he sort of let his guard down a little bit. Um, and, and it makes me it makes me sad. Uh, again, if someone offered me $200 million mm. to switch to a different Christian movie review outlet, I, I might be, I might be tempted. Uh, but when you're talking about $200 million, that is as problematic as this is. And, and let's be honest, it is problematic money. Um, that's, that's something that, that would give me pause. Mm. Um, at the same thing, at the same time. I wonder because we also uh, give Saudi Arabia a lot of money to drive our cars. Um, so in some ways, we, we do have to sort of look at ourselves in the mirror as we sort of analyze this uh, this issue and, and think about whether we could be doing things a little bit better ourselves. Yeah, I know. That's well said, Paul. We, we definitely are doing business with Saudi Arabia and turning a blind eye in a lot of ways. And, and this is really bringing those human rights abuses to the forefront. That's the voice of Paul Acey from PluggedIn.com. We'll continue a bit of golf conversation conversation as we cover the new movie, The Phantom of the Open, as well as the new Buzz Lightyear movie and many other movie and streaming headlines with Paul Acey from PluggedIn.com. About 10 minutes past the top of the hour, we are joined by Paul Acey of PluggedIn.com, and you've heard his voice even uh, just at the top of the hour here. We've been covering a little bit of the golf headlines out of the U.S. Open that's happening as we speak. And, Paul, one of the new movies coming out is titled The Phantom of the Open. Uh, it's the Open Championship uh, reference that happens every year in the United Kingdom. As a person who lived over there and has played those golf courses, I, I'm really excited to see this movie. I don't know if I should be, but it, but it always brings to mind that over there at the British Open, if you play golf and it's 45 mile an hour winds and 45 <laughs> degree temperatures, that's actually a pretty good day to play. So tell us about this movie. I can't wait to see it. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm, I'm now a little bit envious you playing those golf courses. But the movie is about this guy named Maurice Flitcroft. He is a real guy who entered the U.S. Open in 1976 somehow. He had really never touched a golf club uh, a few weeks before he even joined the tournament. But somehow he got in and he scored a 121. Uh, For those who don't know golf... You know, usually 71, 72, that's par. That's what you're kind of shooting for. 121, that is not good because you want to get lower. Like the lower the score, the better you're doing. 121 is pretty, pretty miserable. Uh, so, but he actually won quite a few people over just with his buoyant attitude. He really enjoyed the game, obviously. He even tried to enter the, the tournament uh, several other times in under a, various assumed names. Uh, so yeah, he's a fascinating story. Uh, and the movie is pretty good too. 
Mark Rylance plays plays Flitcroft. Uh, he has this very dry British sense about him that I think serves him well in this role. Uh, it talks a lot about about his attitude, his his buoyancy as he walks down the course. He it talks about his relationship with his wife and his kids, which is not perfect, uh, but there's a lot of beauty to be found in there. Now, because it takes place in the 1970s, you're going to see a lot of smoking. Uh, people drink pretty often too, and and there's quite a bit of cursing as well. So this is not necessarily a movie for everybody. And I don't know how many seven year olds would be really interested in the story of Maurice Flitcroft anyway. But uh, but I do think that 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 for adults who are looking for kind of a fun, interesting movie to see this weekend, this might fit the bill. Mm, well, I could say this as much as I love Scotland, and I genuinely do. What you describe from 1970s Scotland is still about 2022 Scotland in the in these moments. So looking forward to seeing that. I know another movie that seven-year-olds might be interested in is this new movie, Lightyear. But when this was released, this was the source of quite a bit of controversy because they went back and forth in the script about whether they were going to show the gay relationship in this movie. And, and the irony here is, Paul, is they decided to do that. And this movie, it sounds like, is not being aired in certain parts of the world, including a, a place like Saudi Arabia. So we just got done talking about Saudi Arabia sports washing, but now they won't air this movie. It's just it, it fascinating how these just different cross currents play themselves out. It is fascinating. I, I think that you could do a whole, if anybody's looking for a doctoral thesis, that might be a good one, just in terms mm -hmm. of, of what what you see in, in countries in sports versus entertainment. But but the movie Lightyear, uh, it definitely has, uh, it came into the, the, the weekend here with quite a bit of buzz, if you will, uh, not all of it good. As you mentioned, uh, there was a controversial relationship in it that featured a same-sex kiss, and, and and uh, Disney originally had it, then took it out, then reinstated it. Uh, it is still there, and it takes place in the context of, of this 40-year relationship between two women. Um, the primary story is really about Buzz crashing his ship on a planet with very, very aggressive plants. Uh, he, he sort of wound up getting everybody in trouble because he wouldn't listen to somebody around him. Uh, so really, while the, the, the same-sex relationship is definitely part of the story, the real story here is about Buzz Lightyear himself as he tries to uh, learn how to work with and even depend on other people. He's always been sort of a go-it-alone type, uh, but he realizes that he needs to sort of embrace other people around him. Um, and, and honestly, I think that's a that's a wonderful message, and it's it's almost a biblical message, right? Because mm -hmm. as Christians, we're supposed to be carrying one another's burdens. We're supposed to be support, supporting each other through the tough times, and 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 that that sense of community is a great thing that Lightyear brings to the party. The the same sex relationship, though, I think will be a deal killer for a lot of families, mm -hmm. because unlike previous Disney Pixar movies that that might have had like five seconds that, that you needed to be aware of. This one is is a part of the story. Um, and if you go see Lightyear, you're, you're going to have to be prepared to talk with your kids about this issue. And for a lot of parents, uh, this is maybe a little bit too soon for them to, to really want to talk about it. Yeah, Paul, I admit that it's a little bit frustrating to have to navigate this with uh, young children and the way that we 
tend to, and I'm not going to advocate uh, too heavily for the second Top Gun movie that came out because it has its issues as well. But both my daughter and I came out of that movie and we commented that it was nice. It was just nice to be in a story that didn't include um, some sort of agenda pushing that might be happening with script writers. And clearly, I'm not, again, I'm not advocating that Top Gun is some sort of Christian movie, but it just was refreshing to not have to navigate it. Like we seem to have to with like the Eternals that have come out and, and so many other movies in, in which we have to think about these things. And, I don't know how it is for you when you're in the theater, but it kind of takes me out of the story when now we have to navigate that part of it. I I couldn't agree more. I think that one of the things about we just talked about about golf, the thing about sports, about entertainment is is that it's meant to be sort of a relief. Like, right, you're supposed to be getting away from from the pressures and the stresses uh, that we deal with every day. Uh, we want to have that that sense of of peace when we're in a movie theater. And I think that that because of of some of the issues that we see for for a lot of us, that peace has been sort of taken away from us. We we are being dealt. We are being asked to deal with a lot of issues uh, that that we just don't necessarily want to deal with in the movie theater. Now, whether that pays off at the box office for for a lot of these companies that that are doing this sort of thing, that's what I'm really interested in. I'm going to be interested to see how how Lightyear does at the at the box office. Yeah, indeed. Well, we're talking with Paul Acey this morning from PluggedIn.com. He is pinch hitting for Adam Holtz, just as I am pinch hitting for Carmen LeBridge. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to talk a little bit about a disturbing update from Justin Bieber about his health. Talking with Paul Acey of PluggedIn.com about some of the movies, some of the different media and, and Hollywood kinds of updates. And uh, boy, Paul, I realized based on one of these articles that you and Paul Perot have put together here that I really blew it financially. Now, I, I could probably <laughs> say that in a number of different ways. But in this case, uh, there was a VHS copy. And I remember, Paul, where I was when the, the fight between Betamax and VHS was going on about who was going to win the day for home theater. Right. So a VHS copy of Back to the Future sold at an auction for a staggering $75,000. Why did I not keep about 15 copies of that from Blockbuster? Oh my goodness, you're absolutely right. That is exactly what I thought of when I, when I saw the story. I thought, "Man, I just got rid of all my VHSs." You know, and, and that was and that was 20 years after I got rid of my VHS player. I don't know why I had them around <laughs> that long, but but still $75,000. It, it, it's it's staggering. I'm gonna have to go under underneath the house, go into the basement, and see if I have any just laying in the corners. Now, granted, this one was in pristine condition; it had its shrink wrap still on. I'm sure they're never ever going to play it because really, there are better ways to watch Back to the Future. But seventy-five thousand—that's a lot. There it is. Paul's giving us some sound <laughs> sound effects in that. But it's funny you bring that up about the quality of the movies and the presentation. My my oldest son is 22, and he's worked at Goodwill at, in a donation center for a bit, and he loves to just peruse all of the nostalgia-driven throwaways that, that he can find there. So he came home with a proper VHS player, and we, I think we watched one or two movies. Oh, man, Paul Acey, as much as my nostalgia longs for that time, uh, my technology <laughs> sense does not. You could barely even catch the sound and the scene, but uh, it's amazing how much technology has changed compared to what we're seeing now with all the streaming and all the different ways in which we engage with media. 
we are spoiled. I tell you what, when when we were growing up, we could barely see the picture. We could barely hear the sound. Our TVs were much worse. Those of you who are young and who have never experienced that time, consider yourself lucky. <laughs> Indeed. Well, a listener just texted in and said that they have D, uh, uh, Disney VHS in their basement. And that calls to mind too, Paul, that there was um, different sizes of the VHS cassettes. And I always hated trying to put the Disney ones on the shelf of Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid because <laughs> they were so much yeah, the bigger than shelves. the other versions, right? You didn't know how yeah. to, you didn't know how to shelf this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For in our house, we always had them on the lowest shelf, of course, <laughs> so the kids could grab them, but, and, and sort of had them separated from all the rest, but yeah, they were huge containers. It's, it's, uh, it's, we have a lot more storage room in our house now that we don't have any VHS, but we have a lot less money as it turns out. <laughs> Indeed. Well, turning our attention to Justin Bieber, he's in the news. Uh, he's been pretty open with his faith journey in a variety of ways, his mental health journey too, over these last few years. And uh, he's been skipping out on some concerts and, and come to find out that he had a pretty significant health condition. It, it's not fatal or terminal or anything, but it really do, is impacting him. So tell us about this. Yeah, he has, part of his face has been paralyzed. He has what is called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which is caused by the same virus that causes chickenpox and shingles. Uh, so probably a lot of us <laughs> could potentially uh, experience this someday. It, it is a very, very rare disease. Uh, but obviously, when you can't move your face very well, it, it makes it difficult to sing, makes it difficult to do concerts, uh, makes it to do difficult to do a lot of things. Uh, he, he has trouble eating. He has trouble talking. It's very difficult. Uh, but he posted something that I thought was really kind of inspiring uh, on actually on on Instagram. He said, each day has gotten better. And through all the discomfort, I have found comfort in the one who designed me and knows me. He knows the darkest part of me. And I want no one to know that I'd want no one to know about. And he constantly welcomes me into his loving arms. This perspective is giving me peace during this horrific storm that I'm facing. I know this storm will pass. But in the meantime, and in all caps, Jesus is with me. I, I just his faith. I, I admit that I was a bit skeptical at first, but as I followed it, it does seem like it has an authenticity about it. I think he really does. You know, obviously there there are many things that 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 if if I was reviewing his life from a plugged in perspective, I'm sure there are many things that 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 we would we would note. Uh, but but you can't judge somebody's faith necessarily by 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 some of those some of those superficial things. And I think that mm. that his journey is sincere. He continues to grow. It feels like uh, he continues to espouse his love of Jesus, which, frankly, I could do a lot better in my own life. Yeah, no, that's well said. We're talking with Paul Acey of PluggedIn.com. Paul, one more headline to get to. And we're seeing some interesting pushback in the social media sphere. We've obviously seen Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and so many others really have have the influential voice in, in how it impacts and affects people's lives in both known and unknown ways. But now we're seeing some pushback on some of these social media companies, not the least of which is Elon Musk is still trying to buy Twitter and in his mind reform it. But we're also seeing lawsuits being filed against Facebook, which is now called Meta. And that may really change some things there. 
Yeah, it really could. It's going to be an interesting saga to watch. The latest uh, came from the parents of a 19-year-old woman who alleges that uh, that Facebook's uh, Instagram, which is sort of a part of Facebook and Meta, uh, caused this young woman to develop an eating disorder and and begin to to have suicidal ideation. Uh, they just filed a lawsuit just a few days ago. It's one of many that is coming down the pipe, and it's sort of uh, in reaction to what were called the Facebook papers, some some revelations that that Facebook knew that its services were not necessarily that healthy for teens, especially teen girls, and yet they continued to to offer their services and never really make any any real change. Uh, when those revelations came out, it became it, it feels little like the smoking industry that knew that that its own product was damaging people's health. Uh, it required a whole bunch of regulation in the in the aftermath, and when you were talking about the smoking industry, uh, warning labels, and I, I sort of wonder whether, as these lawsuits continue to grow. Uh, exactly how Meta and Facebook and Instagram and all the other social media platforms might deal with some of these issues because they are real issues. Well, I admit that I would probably not be terribly sad if we saw the loss of their influence around us all, <laughs> all the time. I think we get back to some face-to-face conversations and, and maybe a bit more of a parish mindset where we do life with the people around us instead of our, our pixelated friends on, on Facebook. So lots to watch and lots to, to, to bear paying attention to as well. Paul, you do a great job as always filling in for Adam. Appreciate your voice and looking forward to catching up again soon. Thanks so much. Really loved it. We'll take a short break and preview our last half an hour on Mornings Without Carmen. few tips this morning from the Hebrew Old Testament. John Stone Street was just referencing the word chaos, and that word chaos shows up right at the beginning of creation when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Uh, the Hebrew phrase for that is tohu vavohu. It sounds like a pizza, Paul Pro. Tohu. I thought you said tofu first. Yeah, I know, exactly. It's the, to, it's, yeah, you don't like that stuff. It's, it's to, well, tofu would need to be a food in order for, for me to exactly. actually like it. I'm not sure what exactly. it is. But, uh, but tohu vavohu is the Hebrew phrase, formless and void. And what it means is that it was, the world was in a chaotic state. It was unfolding. It was bubbling. It was, uh, rippling. It was dark. And, and it was just this rampant chaos, meaning that it was moving towards its future without any form or purpose at all. And God's first move in creation is say this, let there be light. And this was not God turning on the cosmic um, light with a, a little ka-ching of a chain of some kind. I mean, clearly it might have been visible light, but we see this theme light play itself all throughout the scripture as the ability to see that which is true and bring purpose and hope and meaning. It, it, it's what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. He doesn't bring a physical light. He brings what is true into the world. And so into the midst of the tohu vavohu, the chaos that Stone Street was talking about, we are the light of the world, bringing hope into the chaos. We'll do more of that next with author Dennis Allen as we talk about the discipleship dilemma and how we can at least identify those things that are maybe preventing us from engaging more effectively as disciples. Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge this morning, and we are joined by author Dennis Allen, who has written the book, The Disciple Dilemma. Once again, it's The Disciple 
Dilemma. It is a book available on ebook as we speak. It's coming back and uh, coming out in paperback on July 19th. And a really incredibly important topic in terms of the reformation of the church moving forward. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Peter. It's been great to chat off the air already with you just a bit. I think you're on the front end of what are some really important trends here. And just to sort of set the scene for your book, you, you talk about the idea that leaders must reform our contemporary Christian culture from this, and, and just catch this, from mass-gathered member-based systems and back into relational, one-on-few intentional relationships. And I think another way we could say this, Dennis, is that whether we know it or not, church leadership and seminaries have been training church leadership for the better part of about 30 years, uh, especially since the establishment of Willow Creek in Chicago, to become pastors of churches in which the focus is to drive as many people as possible through the doors on a Sunday morning and uh, and, and have seeker-based services that introduce people to the faith. And there's, there's probably a lot of merit in that, but this is what's called an attractional model, meaning that the church uh, develops marketing plans and strategies, does demographic analysis, tries to figure out what people want. They create coffee shops and worship songs and short YouTube-driven sermons, all of these things to try to attract as many people on the Sunday morning. And again, maybe that had merits, but I think we're seeing now 30 years in that we've also experienced a pretty profound failure of the rigors of ongoing discipleship. And I think your book takes us into that. Well, thanks for the chance to chat about it. We provocatively talk to people to say hiding in plain sight around us in Christian community is a hack in the operating system of the discipleship Christ gave us. Mm. Yeah, so take us into that a bit, because to be a Christian does mean to be a Christ follower, which means that uh, you are a disciple. And so you reference a few church traditions, quote unquote, that have derailed how we do discipleship. What did you notice there? Yeah, so those traditions that we are describing, six in the front end of the book, are trying to help people realize there really is a problem lurking around us. So as an example of one, when you think about the pre-Constantinian era, go back to the third century, after Christ is gone now, we've got uh, a lot of persecution. The concept of optional lordship began to emerge on the horizon. And what we mean by that term is it was okay to be saved by Jesus, but when things get hot, when the cost gets high, check out, keep your head low, stay in the foxhole. And when things cool off, you can come back in, keep being a good believer, which means today, as we morph this forward over all these centuries, I'm great being saved. Sam Alberry would say, I love being a fan of Jesus, but this upgrade to unconditional surrender and transformation, no thanks, I'm good. Yes, you bring up an important point. Uh, A.W. Tozer, uh, during this rise of sort of this attractional model or this idea that we can do a 30-second transaction and get ourselves positioned properly for heaven, like that whole model, he says this, uh, quote, A.W. Tozer again, feeling that a notable heresy, this is strong language, notable heresy has come into being throughout evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as a savior, but that we would postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. Salvation apart from discipleship, he says, is unknown in the sacred scriptures. And so there, we have a theological issue, I think, here, Dennis, don't we, in terms of how we split this idea of getting saved or some future question from becoming a follower of Jesus. When I read the yeah, biblical we, text, all we see is Jesus saying, come follow me. There wasn't this idea of go get saved first and then follow. It was just come and follow. Yeah, I think there's been a t- tremendous dilution and loss of that original version 1.0 discipleship Christ gave us, which is 
phrases that are so familiar to us, they put us to sleep. What does it mean to take up the cross? What does it mean to surrender? What does it mean to die to self? We, we think of those things today like we're negotiating a real estate deal. I'll come halfway, Jesus comes halfway, I get saved, he's nice to me, life is good, I'm happy. And that dilution, while it's been going on for centuries, is becoming very acute in the research statistics and in the reality of the lives of the people around us as Christ. Yeah, one of the um, disciplines in which I've tried to engage these last couple of decades is just to enter into that song um, that really is a discipleship song, which is, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. This, this is what you're talking about in terms of, of making the, a decision for Christ is not necessarily a decision to get saved the way we think it. It's a decision that I'm going to stop following the realities and the idols of this world, and I'm going to follow a singular master and listen to the voice of my shepherd uh, some of these traditions, again, that you reference, derail some of that kind of language and invitation. It is a complete, invisible, stealthy problem in the societies inside the walls of our churches. And we have all lived and marinated in this for so long, Peter, that what we think of as normal, right, and good is actually non-biblical. And we've got to reform this not only at the individual level, which we see lots of books, lots of programs talking about, but we've got to reform this at the institutional level in the DNA of the society and the culture of our churches. What do you see as some practical ways in which the institutions can begin to do this, uh, Dennis? Because I agree with you. These are they're pretty, it's pretty big statements to say that some of this is unbiblical, but I think a fair-minded look at the text can demonstrate that it's really only in the last maybe 40 to 60 years that we have commercialized some version of the gospel, again, towards just the singular decision, and then you get saved and that's that. Um, there's, there's a different invitation. What are some steps some churches can take to begin to reform the way we understand following Jesus? I'm going to ask you just to take this car for a test drive. You don't have to buy it, but here's really the issue. We have got to rethink what is actually and truly the mission of all churches and mm. all believers, and arguably what I'm saying, please, if you've got any concerns or get really angry about this, blame it on Peter for letting me on this broadcast. <laughs> the, the bus uh, tire just went right over my back, Dennis. Thank you. <laughs> I'm feeling better already. The, the, the core of this is that all churches and all believers of Christ are called to the mission of the progression, not the making. We look at the word making, but progression of disciples, which is both me becoming that transformed, surrendered, dying to self person, but also being the wingman alongside people going forward and we have to focus that mission as leaders first, teaching and coaching that culture, like a good coach, like a good offensive or defensive coordinator on the sidelines of those teams. You don't want those pro coaches on the field. You want them on the sidelines calling the plays. You coaches, leaders have to reform that society and culture. That's step one. It is uh, step one. We're talking with Dennis Allen, the author of The Disciple Dilemma. It is available now on ebook. It will be available in paperback in about a month or so, a little over a month. I do highly recommend this book. And Dennis, when you talk about what our mission of the church is, that takes me to our great commission from Matthew 28. Uh, and, and if we're really careful and let the Bible be the Bible instead of our theology, our preconceived theology be the Bible, and we just read it for, on its own face value, what we see there is it says, Go, therefore, well, first of all, it says all authority has been given to me under heaven and on earth. And what Jesus is saying by all authority is he's saying, I am the singular teacher of a way of life and hope. I am the person who has conquered sin and death. 
I'm the only voice worth listening to. And because that's true, then as you are my disciples, go, and it doesn't say go and have people make a quick decision. It says go and make disciples, inviting them to follow me, baptizing or surrounding or immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded with, uh, commanded you. And just know this, I am with you always, even into the end of the age as you do this work. And in all of that, Dennis, we see the beautiful invitation of mission. We do see the beautiful invitation of mission. And we don't typically think that way. We think a mission is a mission statement on a shelf. It's the transformation of life and the transformation of culture. It is. What are you seeing? Uh, I, I know that when we talk this way with young people in my classes, that they start really waking up and, and want to begin to follow Jesus in a, in a different kind of way. Um, in the midst of, I know your book addresses the, how millennials are walking away from the church. Um, what would you say discipleship has had to do with that? But what are you also seeing on the flip side of some really positive developments? Well, the, of course, the negative side has been, we're just no different than any other cause wherever it happens to be and wherever it happens to go. So why is this any better? And it's not because society's turning against the message, right? That's that's the frustration so many people sub 45 are feeling in the world they're in. On the front end of this, though, if we are willing to truly follow Christ, we will be salt, light, difference, and people are going to go, I want in on that. Again, talking with Dennis Allen, his uh, book is The Disciple Dilemma. We're going to step away for just a moment. And when we come back, Dennis, um, let's get into some of the hope-filled parts of this, too, as we reconstruct uh, a theology of discipleship and what can begin to happen in a person's life in authentic ways. So more to come here on Mornings Without Carmen. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with Dennis Allen, the author of The Disciple Dilemma. And just as a suggestion, uh, Dennis has put up a lot of material at thediscipledilemma.com. And maybe this weekend, if you're looking uh, for a way to get fed, to grow in your faith a bit, um, go to thediscipledilemma.com because, Dennis, you have a, quite a few resources up there. Why don't you take a second to highlight a few of them for us? Well, if you take uh, just a stroll through there, we've got videos, audios, blogs, comment opportunities for people to to wrestle a little bit with this same idea, saddle up, understand it. It's out on YouTube as well, on the YouTube channel, same thing, Disciple Dilemma, and Facebook, same thing, Disciple Dilemma. So jump in, help us with the conversation. Yeah, so can you point to a couple of different articles or resources there that uh, you'd want to highlight as part of this conversation on discipleship? Well, we just pitched a blog the other day about uh, does discipleship have anything to do with the multiverse? And that's a fun one for people to scrimmage a little bit. When we think about the idea of disciples Monday through Fridays, that's one universe we live in. Be quiet. Keep your head low. Don't talk. Versus the disciple universe on Sundays when we're inside the church walls. Jump in and take a look at that. What does it mean to be a manager instead of a leader? as a Christian leader in the church, and how destructive is that in discipleship? Those are a couple of thoughts. Yeah, that's really helpful. Again, uh, Dennis Allen, uh, author of Disciple Dilemma. Dennis, if you're a parent or a grandparent uh, here thinking about what you can invite your own kids or grandkids into, what suggestions do you have um, to help introduce them to the idea of discipleship and what that kind of life looks like? This is something that's so crucial for families because the, what, we're, what we're seeing in discipleship today is going to ripple through. The good side, the side that Jesus gave us, the version that Jesus gave us is one where it is unity, changing the world, making a complete difference, and you being someone with a destiny and a calling and a purpose that transcends anything in the world. This is beyond 
a green agenda or a political agenda or an intellectual agenda. This is, as Darth Vader would say, your destiny. What a cool thing for kids. <laughs> that is a cool thing for kids. Um, you have a phrase in here called uh, mass production discipleship, and you're suggesting that it doesn't work and never will. So introduce us to the concept of mass production discipleship and maybe what's problematic. And But also we would love a, a, just some thoughts on what might be more helpful. The Harvard Business School model wants you to come to, and by the way, I'm a turnaround CEO. That's my vocation. I go around and work with troubled businesses, corporations, large ones in their problems. And when it comes to the Harvard Business School case in discipleship, the world is get as efficient as you can, get as lean as you can, get as much turn and production as you can. So what we like to do is slosh lots of people together in large rooms, programs, and seminars and say, okay, if we've sloshed everybody together one of the terms we stole is herd community from the pandemic. Instead of herd immunity, it's herd community. If you slosh enough people around together, you have disciples, which is false, not true. The reality of this is we can't keep on mass producing fragile, brittle disciples by just throwing them into an hour a week, 1.7 times a month, and hope that those are really powerful disciples. We need to get back to Christ's model. Now, the better way forward. The change in society leaders need to think about is how we get radical, individual, Western American people who don't like relationship, who like the digital walls, who like being in groups and crowds into relational models. But in that is the hope of Christ, because it's one-on-ones, one-on-twos, one-on-fews, not one-on-tens and hundreds and thousands. Yeah, say a bit more about that, too, because that is a pretty significant shift in somebody's way of life. I think if I wanted to become a professional tennis player, for example, it probably wouldn't work out for me to be at Wimbledon in five years if I spent most of my life trying to be a tennis player with only one hour a week on a Sunday morning and an occasional Wednesday night. But I I think that taking some of the mystery out of discipleship, discipleship functions in the same way. We need to be attending to it day in and day out. Imagine if you we're walking into a hospital, getting ready to have a rather serious procedure. And uh, the admitting folks said, I want you to know that Dr. Dennis has read the finest books, watched the greatest videos, and every week he attends for an hour, a medical seminar. Now he's actually never done any surgery because he's never had a doctor go alongside him, but we've got the knife in his hand and we're ready. Please sign here and let me have your visa card. Let's go to the operating room. That's not a very comfortable world, but in a sort of dramatic way, that's the same problem in discipleship. I bring you to the knowledge of Jesus. You choose to surrender to Christ. Christ has, in his regendered power, brought you before the throne of God. By the way, here's a Bible. Hit the membership class. You're good to go. Hope life's good for you. Bye. Hmm. That's not a good model of discipleship. Yeah. So how would you start to change that? Do you just have to just say, hey, look, I, I would like to start gathering in different ways with different people in, in different kinds of uh, life together? Because it's tricky when we live so uh, apart from each other and, and we're so busy all the time. Most of the time in seminary and in business school, we teach you to talk to large crowds of people. This is tearing it down and saying, how is it that Professor Peter mentors one-on-ones and one-on-twos as an example so that the rest of the crowd gets the idea, oh yeah, we're supposed to be operating teams of ones and twos and then occasionally gathering in larger groups. We need to gather in church. We need to gather in small groups. We need to go on mission trips. We need to have all the ministry action we're doing. But the fundamental element of discipleship is a wingman flying with you one-on-one, one-on-two. And leaders have to rebuild our society inside the church 
to do just that by example first, but also by the teaching and development of relational discipling. Uh, again, it's Dennis Allen. He's an author of Disciple Dilemma. I'm not going to suggest the book is not provocative to use a double negative because it is, but I know that Dennis, a lot of people are increasingly talking about the kinds of things you're talking about. One more topic to get into from your book, and that has to do with how businesses and churches are similarly failing. And I, and I think for quite a season now, we have operated under the assumption that the church is sort of a business. I run a business myself. I know you've been a CEO in our that and the church really isn't meant to be like a business, and yet we've brought that assumption into the church. The tyranny, of the urgent. Uh, uh, Hummel's book is a is a great example of how leaders are dragged down into becoming managers. And when we bring you down to a manager, then suddenly we have you having to deal with metrics. How many baptisms did you have? How many memberships mm-hmm. did you get? How how big is your capital budget? What's the next big facility? Those things are all important, and management is necessary for the people who work for us as leaders, but leaders have to deal with the mission, and the distraction for us is becoming managers and not leaders. Therefore, we have to change the leadership paradigms from simply being typical, metric-driven, programmatic churches into that relational mission of staying on the mission Christ gave us. Yeah, and that can be a tricky process of transition, I would think, Dennis, because a lot of churches have fairly large budgets and and, uh, maybe some financial investment in a building that needs to be paid off. And uh, so it does demand a bit of an attractional model to try to bring people through the doors to help support all of those budgetary needs. A a switch to more of a one-to-one discipleship, that may not be great for the bottom line of the church. It's always a scary challenge, but we spent seven chapters in the book saying we want to walk you through the biblical process, which, by the way, also is a strategic business process, but it's a biblical process to say, how does this transformation begin so that the successes that are necessary for the ongoing daily operation of the church don't impair discipleship, and discipleship is not, of course, hindering that. And, of course, you and I would know this, I think, Peter, from a conversational point, but If we are actually in the business of progressing and making disciples, the church will flourish. I love it. Uh, Dennis, thanks for taking the time this morning. One more time, if uh, you're listening to this conversation, go to thedisciplelemma.com. You could probably spend the weekend chewing through a lot of the materials that are there. It's really helpful as a way of understanding our kingdom life moving forward. Have a great weekend, Dennis. Thanks for having me, Peter. We'll take a short break and wrap up our show for this day and this week on the 17th of June. Thank you, Mary, for the text that you just sent in to Happy Father's Day to me. And I would extend that Happy Father's Day as you did to everybody who is part of our Faith Radio family that finds themselves in that position. Uh, as we honor our fathers this weekend, both living and past, um, sometimes it's not always the easiest thing to do. I know we talked with Gary Stratton earlier this week about Father's Day and um, and just being grateful on some level or for many of us, many levels for our fathers. So celebrate well this weekend. As I said at the top of this show a couple of hours ago, it's been an utter 
joy to be with all of you this last week uh, in this role in Carmen's chair. I'm looking forward to her being back next week. Paul Perot, it's been a joy to be with you, too. There's just something about starting our days this way uh, that that carry me into the rest of the day. I'm I'm a frail enough disciple in what we just (laughs) talked about, that this is the kind of food that I need to keep going as as a father and a husband, as a professor, all of those different things. We need to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus together. Yeah, well, thanks for, for bringing what you did to the conversations this week. It was very wonderful. So yeah. thank you. So, such a delight. I will catch all of you again Thursday morning with Carmen. Looking forward to catching up with her again. Until that time, continue to do just that. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the only hope of an eternal king, of an eternal kingdom. And to him, we give our allegiance. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.